Well, for those of you that missed, uh, missed last week, uh, you missed an interesting title to a Christmas series because the title of this year's uh, Christmas series is Another Ho-Hum Christmas Series. Yes, that's, that's true. Another Ho-Hum Christmas Series. And you can tell those kids, those teenagers, they're not exactly very excited about uh, Christmas. Uh, they seem a little, uh, a little bored, a little dull, like they've been in the routine of things. But I've chosen this title specifically for uh, this uh, little series of messages because I know the tendency of so many of us around this time of year. You know, we, we walk into church around Christmas and we may tend to think, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's Christmas. And well, now we can tune out a little bit. After all, we know the story very well. We know uh, we, we've heard it many times before. But you see, complacency is not something our Lord ever wants us to have. He never wants us to have a complacent heart. In fact, God always asks us to be an expectant people, regardless of the time or season that we may be in. And so last week, we considered the story of Zacharias in the Gospel of Luke. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And the Bible said that that Zechariah was a man of God, and yet he became complacent. He got caught up in the spiritual and national drought that plagued Israel. And when God sent an angel, an angel, to tell Zacharias that he would be the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, Zacharias didn't believe it. A man of God, no less. But when push came to shove, he got complacent. And he waned in expectation because of the drought. And that was the title of last week's message. Part one was to be expectant in drought. And today we come to part two. And the final part of our small Christmas series here today, part two, I've entitled it Christmas Epiphany. Christmas Epiphany. Epiphany. And you might be wondering, you know, what? well, I've, I've, I've heard that word. I think I know that word. What is an epiphany? Uh, it's a great question. I found a fantastic definition of epiphany online, and I wanted to show it to you, see if it makes sense to you. Epiphany, that moment you realize that your lunch. That's just kind of cruel, don't you think? I mean, how many of you have seen those posters before, right? Oh, I love those posters, right? Yeah, now, the, normally they're motivational, right? Like, you know, accomplishment, achievement, success, leadership. And it gives a nice inspirational quote. Well, this, you've got to go on, like, uh, I think it's a website called despair.com. And uh, it gives you kind of the demotivators, not the, not, not the motivational pro- posters, but the demotivational posters. I want to put that up on my wall. I mean, I, I, I really... It's just, it's right, you know? Epiphany, the moment you realize your lunch. No, that's not epiphany. I, I hope not. But what's interesting is that epiphany, I mean, the first definition, the first definition of epiphany might surprise you. If you say the word epiphany to a Roman Catholic or to an Anglican or uh, in, in many Lutheran circles, what comes to mind is much different than what you and I might think of as epiphany. In fact, so well 
is so well known is a, a high church or a Roman Catholic understanding of Epiphany, so well known is their understanding of the word that Merriam-Webster's dictionary, in fact, lists their definition as the number one definition of the word Epiphany. And I wanted to read it to you. Take a look at the number one definition of Epiphany in Webster's dictionary. January 6th, observed as a church festival in commemoration of the coming of the Magi, the wise men, as the first manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, or in the Eastern Church, in commemoration of the baptism of Christ. How many of you knew that? A couple of you. Yeah, I I thought it would be surprising to many of us. This is, in your dictionaries, the first definition, the, the foremost meaning of the word epiphany. It is often referred to as the Feast of the Epiphany. And now in truth, the date of January the 6th, which actually happens to be our anniversary, honey, uh, that that date of January 6th, which was an epiphany for me, uh, that date is unlikely in a good way. Come on now, folks. A good epiphany. That date of January 6th was unli- is unlikely to be historically accurate. Uh, the visit of the Magi or the wise men likely took place not a matter of days, but a matter of actually months after the birth of Christ, based on the Bible record. Um, one of the ways that we know this is because what did Mary offer uh, in the temple as a result of her sacrifice after 40 days of giving birth to Jesus? What did she offer in the temple? Anybody remember? Yeah, say that nice and loud, Bill. Sorry? Doves, that's correct. And doves in the Old Testament law was a symbol of poverty. And so had the Magi come prior to those 40 days and given the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, Mary's gift in the temple at the 40th day would not have been two doves. In fact, it would have been something much greater. It would have, uh, it would have been the... The, the fulfillment of what kind of sacrifice she was to bring had she had the means. And so the, the visit of the Magi, is, we're kind of getting off track, but the visit of the Magi was probably not days after Jesus' birth. It's probably months after Jesus' birth. So the date itself is probably not historically accurate. Nevertheless, the Feast of Epiphany reflects a deep-rooted sense of tradition in the lives of many Christians worldwide. Tradition that even influences popular culture today. For instance, leading up to the Feast of the Epiphany are a unique set of dates. December 25th to January 5th. December 25th to January 5th. If you were to count up those days of this time frame, what you would notice is that they equal 12. You see, January 6th, also marks the end of the twelfth day after Christmas. Hence, the song that we all know and well, the twelve days of Christmas. You, you've sung it many times before, the twelve days of Christmas. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me.
just spontaneous. That's amazing. Now that was an epiphany. <laughs> that was an epiphany. And that brings us to, the, to what we know as the definition of epiphany. Let's take a look at the, at the definition that we know well and good. A usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something an illuminating discovery, a realization, or a disclosure. We have that aha moment. That's an epiphany. That moment where things are out of the ordinary and we see something new and fresh and vivid for the very first time. When we think of epiphany, we think of a momentous experience or event that shakes us to the core, a new perspective, an original thought, a coming aware of something great, previously unknown, but now known and understood as true and good and beautiful. That is an epiphany for most of us. And if ever, if ever there was a moment in human history that could be described as an epiphany, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to bring salvation and deliverance to all mankind, that is an epiphany. You know what is beautiful. Epiphany is precisely the word that we can use to describe the coming of Jesus Christ and the coming of God's salvation upon this world. And what is interesting is that when we open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and grab a Bible if you don't have one, when we open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we see Paul, the Apostle, use a very interesting word to describe the coming of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Take a look in our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're going to go to verse 14. Titus 2 11 to 14, Paul writes this. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, epiphane, to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Zero in on verse 11 for just a moment. Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God. The grace of God has come to the world in the person of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, Himself fully divine, incarnated, and became fully man that He might shower us with grace and mercy. Paul writes of of this in other terms uh, elsewhere in Corinthians. He writes in 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor 
that you through His poverty might become rich. You may have heard it uh, defined before, and I think very rightly so, that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And indeed, we have received something that we do not deserve in the person of Jesus Christ. Men and women, created by God, shunned Him. Men and women, created in God's image, looked upon their Creator and ignored Him. We slandered Him. We shook our fists at Him and had the gall to call Him to account for our own self-inflicted pain and hardship and trial. Yet still, God loved us. And Jesus told us as much when He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came and gave us grace. Jesus came and gave us what we did not deserve. Reconciliation with God. And how, how does Paul describe this momentous event? What term, what word does he use to explain the unimaginable act of grace that God has shown to all mankind? What word does he use? He uses the word epiphany. Epiphany. Epiphane gar e charis theu. For the grace of God has appeared. Epiphane. Epiphany. Not only does Paul use a most perfect word to describe this earth-shattering act of God, this word is for Paul so crucial and so central to his point that he actually starts the sentence with it. In Greek, we call this the emphatic position. He actually takes that word appeared or epiphane, and in Greek, we see it all the way at the start of the sentence. And Paul does that very strategically to call attention to it. He says, appear, take a look at this. Something dramatic has happened. Someone dramatic has appeared. The grace of God has come. He takes a word which would normally be reserved for a middle of a sentence and he puts it all the way at the start of a sentence for emphasis, for strength, for exclamation. And you know, we do this in English quite a bit. Um... We, we do this frequently. In fact, uh, a very good example. I mean, ask yourself this question. Have you ever sang this song? Have you ever sang that song? You have? I've never sang that song. However, I have sang this song. Big difference, right? The Herald Angels sing Hark. That sounds like a lame song. But when you put Hark at the start of the sentence, Hark! The Herald Angels sing Glory to the newborn King. That, hark, is in the emphatic position. We take a word which would normally be in a sentence be used toward the end or maybe the middle and we take that word and for emphasis we put it at the start and so also we see in Greek, take a look, he, Paul says this, he says, appeared, appeared, epiphane, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. It's a shame our English translations don't translate it that way. They should. Appeared. Something dramatic has happened. The grace of God is here. Epiphany. Appeared. Give light. Be revealed. 
I know of an epiphany, says Paul. I know of an epiphany. An epiphany that has no equal. An epiphany that, of which there is no greater knowledge, there's no greater truth than this. There's nothing of more value than to receive the eternal grace of God by believing in Jesus as your Savior. And Paul says, not only does this epiphany give us everlasting life, but reflection, meditation on this epiphany is actually instructive to our human heart. Consideration of this epiphany that the grace of God has come is instructive for our very lives. For Paul writes in verse 12, it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. God's grace is instructive. And reflection on the epiphany of Jesus Christ on the epiphany of the grace of God, contemplation about it, contemplation and meditation on Christmas and on the coming of grace is instructive to our very souls. We have received what we do not deserve. And as we ruminate and ponder this grace, it prods us to deny the very sinful nature that Jesus died for to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. When we reflect the grace on the grace of God, it teaches us to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly in this age, knowing full well the great price with which Jesus purchased our eternal destiny. Um, reflect this Christmas. Reflect on the moment of Christ's birth, on the coming of grace. Spend time, intentional time, at home with your spouse, with your children, with your family, with your friends. Spend intentional moments reflecting on the impact and significance of the coming of Jesus Christ. It will be instructive to your soul. It will be edifying. It will not be old hat. It will not be routine. It will not be ho-hum. It will be instructive to your very soul and push you toward godliness. Not only are we to be reflecting past tense on the grace of God that was and, and now is, but also we are to be anticipating, Paul writes, of grace that is to come. Take a look at verse 13. He writes, "...looking for the blessed hope..." and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we find Paul encouraging us to be an expectant people. We've mentioned this many times over. Expectant. Expectant of our Lord's return. And what word? What word does Paul use to describe this second great moment in human history? What word does he use? Epiphany. Epiphany. This time he uses the noun form of the, ver of the word in Greek, epiphaneon. But the word is no less significant. What's Paul's point? Of all great moments, of all great knowledge, only two epiphanies 
are worthy of mankind's undivided attention. The first is the epiphany of Christmas. And the second is the epiphany of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first is the day when God sent grace to earth in the form of His Son to bring salvation to all. And the second great epiphany is the coming of Jesus Christ again on the last day. The day when Jesus will come as King and judge forever. And Paul says, reflection on Christmas, on the grace, on the coming of Christ, reflection and anticipation of the coming of Christ, of that last day, of the day when everything will be brought to rights. These things are instructive. Teaching our very soul. Notice how he concludes in verse 14. Jesus who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people zealous for good works. Two epiphanies. Two epiphanies, both instructive and transformative. Reflection upon Christmas and anticipation of Christmas part two. When these two epiphanies are at the forefront of our mind, they change our lives. As we reflect on God's grace to us, God's Spirit purifies us and makes us zealous for good works. Because you see, Christmas is not a ho-hum event. It's not a season of routine. It's not dull and it's not boring. Christmas is an epiphany. It is a sudden manifestation of glorious truth. Emmanuel, God with us. The the epiphany of Christmas is like no other save the final epiphany, which will be made known to all on the last day when Jesus Christ comes again in glory. Christmas, the second coming, These two epiphanies, the greatest moments in human history, I urge all of us this season to reflect on these epiphanies. To reflect on them with renewed faith, with renewed hope, with renewed expectancy. Expectant of what God has in store for us. For Paul tells us when we are thinking about these moments, these sudden moments of manifestation of truth, we grow. We are edified. We are strengthened. We are made holy. Consider the epiphany of Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for just the beautiful truth, Lord, of Christmas Day. Father, we've had epiphanies in our lives. Maybe on the day of our wedding the day of a child's birth. Father, moments of of just a sudden display of goodness and truth and beauty. We've seen glimpses of epiphanies. But God, we know, and Paul has told us, that there are only two epiphanies that are worthy of all of mankind's attention. There are only two epiphanies, God, that are worthy of every single man, woman, and child's undivided attention. And it is the epiphany 
of the coming of your Son and of His grace. And it is the epiphany of His soon coming return in glory. God, if there be two thoughts in our minds this season, let these epiphanies be those thoughts. If there be two things that we meditate on, that we ponder, that we deliberate, that we muse upon, let these epiphanies be at the forefront. Epiphane. Epiphane. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.